0: This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software.
1: So i'm sitting here with eric evans he is well known as the author of the domain driven design book that book had a huge impact on the design and architecture of object-oriented systems he's working as a consultant trainer and coach for his own company called domain language and has a lot of expertise obviously concerning domain-driven design Uh, during his career he has seen and influenced a huge number of projects and architectures he's also well-known speakers at several conferences and actually, we had him on the show a while ago. That's rather a long time ago. So episode eight in 2006, that was an episode that we did with Eric. So Eric, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me on it.
1: Yeah, thanks for finding the time. The show will be about domain-driven design at 10. So it's already 10 years that you came up with the idea. Some of the listeners might not be that familiar with domain-driven design, So, Eric, can you give us a short introduction about domain-driven design, what it is, and how it is special?
2: In its essence, domain-driven design is a way of using models for creating software, especially the part of the software that handles complex business requirements and uh, such behavior. So the the particular way in domain-driven design, the thing that we focus on is that we want a language where we can really crisply concisely describe any situation in the domain and describe how we're going to solve it or what kind of calculations we need to do and that language would be shared between business people specialists in that domain as well as uh, software people who will be writing the software and that we call the ubiquitous language because it runs through that whole process. We don't do as most projects do. We don't talk to the business people sort of on their terms and then go and have very technical conversations about how the software will work. Separately, we try to bring those conversations together to create this conceptual model with a very clear language. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And it can't be done in a global sense. You can't, come up with the model for your entire organization. Attempts to do that are very counterproductive. So the other ingredient in that is what we call the bounded context. So I have a clear boundary, perhaps a particular application that we're working on. And within this boundary, we say, This is what my words mean. This is the relationship between the concepts. Everything is clear and we work hard to make it clear. But then outside that boundary, all sorts of different rules apply in some parts of the system. Perhaps no rules really apply. And out of that comes the rest of domain-driven design. But that's really the essence of it. It's a particular way of dealing with these complex parts of our systems. And I guess that
1: is also why uh, so many people are interested in that because that's really what, what a lot of software engineers do. Can you give an example of such a bounded context and how models might be different there? Because I think that's yeah one of the very interesting parts of DDD, at least it was for me.
2: I can give some examples. One common thing is that different parts of an organization might deal with the domain in a very different way. And There may even already be software, oh there probably is already software that uh deals with those different parts. So take some company that does e-commerce, and so there's a part of the software where we're taking orders. So we are very focused on what kind of items are in the inventory and how much they cost, and how do we collect these uh items together into some kind of a shopping cart. then eventually the order is created and and, and then there's payment and all of those concerns. But then in shipping, perhaps they're not really that interested in most of those issues. What they care about an item is what kind of box will it fit into and, and how much does it weigh and which kind of shipping did you pay for and do we ship it all in one box or this one's out of stock so we're going to go ahead and ship the part we've got and then send the rest later and how do we keep track of an order that's been partially shipped but part of it's still waiting. Although in theory you could create a single model that would represent all these different aspects, in practice that's not what people usually do and it works better to separate those two contexts and say well we basically have a shipping system here and a order taking system. And perhaps other things too, you know, I'm not saying that it has, it would just be those two. You could create concepts so general and uh, versatile that you could handle all these cases, but we're usually better off with more specialized models. A model that handles really well the idea of a, an order as a set of physical objects that fit into certain kinds of boxes and that you may or may not have available at this time. And another one that says, well, here are items that you've chosen and here are similar items and, you know, just totally different issues.
1: I think that that's a very good short introduction to DDD. And in particular, the bounded context is, um, I think, really one of the the interesting things here, as you said, where you would have totally different, let's say, perspectives on items, uh, whether you're working on shipping or ordering things. So. Looking back on those 10 years of DDD, what was the impact of DDD in your opinion?
2: Well, uh, it's very hard for me to see that. I mean, I do have a sense it's had an impact. And sometimes people tell me that it had a big influence on them. And I think the things that make me feel the best is occasionally someone says the sort of brought back the fun of software development for them or made them really enjoy software development again. And that particularly makes me feel good. It's so hard for me to judge what the overall impact is. I really uh, don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's always good if you uh, can bring back the joy in in work again. To me, the, the impact of the book is quite huge. I would even call it a movement, uh, sort of a DDD movement. So do you think that's truth? Would you call it a movement or is it something different to you?
2: I think that probably that was my intention, that I had the sense that I wanted to start a movement. And it may be a very diffuse movement, but it would be nice to think if it had a little of that quality to it. One of the things that I really emphasized, and this part had a crusading quality to it, that when we're working on software, we need to keep the, a really sharp focus on the underlying domain and the business and we shouldn't look at our jobs as just technologists but really our job is and this is a difficult job is as this person who can start to penetrate into the the complexity and tangle of of these domains and start to sift that apart in a way that allows nice software to be written and sometimes when you really do it well the problem becomes significantly easier on a technical level
1: yeah so i think it's about let's say model mining or knowledge mining what what a lot of our job is about yes Was the impact of your book and the whole movement, was it different from what you have expected? Are there any surprises?
2: Well, one pleasant surprise is that it hasn't just kind of faded. You know, most uh, books go through a fairly short cycle. They become very popular for three or four years and then they kind of drop into the background and DDD has stayed. A pretty relevant topic for a long time now really like 11 years and since it's now 2015 (laughs) and uh, so that's genuinely surprises me actually but obviously in a good way
1: and I couldn't agree more I mean to me it's almost like like a timeless um, thing that that you've created there what part of the DDD movement did you learn the most from what gave you the biggest progress in your own knowledge and skill set
2: Oh, I think that, and this I think is closely related to why people still pay attention to DDD. The DDD has not been static. So the core concepts of it have been very stable. I would say I can express them better now. But the but the people who are really doing it, there have been a couple of big shifts in how people tend to build these systems. So the first big one was when event sourcing and CQRS came on the scene. And the way that we went about designing and building a DDD system changed a lot. When did that happen? That was uh, maybe 2007 or... Anyway, you know, after a few years, and it may be that just about the time that we would have been following that natural cycle of, oh, what's new and, and moving on to the next thing, DDD kind of got a big renovation. And I learned a tremendous amount from those people, from uh, Greg Young, Udi Dahan, and the others who went around and around about instancing and CQRS and just really shook things up. And my way of thinking about things changed a lot. And I think the way most people think about DDD now is significantly different because of that. And there have been a few other things, uh, but that was certainly the first big one.
1: Do you think there are any circumstances where a DDD approach would fail? And how would you deal with them? Or is it something that can be made to work in any project?
2: Well, so there's a few aspects to that. That's an interesting question, because uh, certainly DDD projects fail all the time. It's not unusual. Yeah. Of course, some of that is just anything difficult fails sometimes. Right. So we needn't worry about that. Uh, and I think DDD is hard. So, what would make DDD project more likely to fail than other times? I think that some of the most common things are so there is a tendency to slip into perfectionism. Whenever people are serious about modeling and design, they start slipping toward perfectionism. Other people start slipping toward very broad scope you know we will model the whole thing and and even if we have five different bounded contexts, but we'll model each one with great elegance and all at the same time so some projects fail because they get too ambitious they don't walk before they run Uh, some of them because they're in an area where the strategy of the organization isn't very clear let me put it this way, the greatest value of DDD comes when you're very close to the bone of what's strategically important within the company. That's when it pays off the most. You need a certain degree of complexity, intricacy in the problem, or else, or at least some fuzziness, or else there's no point to all that thinking. But also you need to be in some strategically relevant thing. But along with that goes a certain amount of, of the rough and tumble of the politics of organizations. Some organizations change their strategies, and I've seen all these things happen. There's all sorts of, uh, of other things. Of course, sometimes the skills of the team are the problem. So you might have a situation where they get off to a good start, and then their execution isn't very good. And of course, bad programming will undermine any software approach. Ultimately, you're, you know, the code has to be good. Well, the code has to be competence. And uh, that one hurts a lot of projects. Of course, since I mentioned bounded contexts earlier, and I want to underline how fundamental that is, it's not an easy discipline. You know, if we've established that the shipping context and the order-taking context are separate, and so we've made a boundary between them, there's some kind of translation layer there. But Somebody, you know, some programmer in the shipping context needs a piece of data, and that data is over in the order-taking context. Now, what does he do? Does he just say, well, I can just write a query on the order-taking database. That'll just take me 15 minutes, or I could go and talk to people about how are we going to enhance the you know the uh, interface and translator between those two contexts, and then model this. Oh, uh, how would this piece of information be modeled within our context? And then I'll do my feature. So it takes a certain level of discipline to maintain that boundary. And when the boundary's gone, the two models start clashing and. it it all goes down the tubes pretty fast. Another variation on this, of course, is that if you have a lot of legacy systems and you're trying to do some work and you're... um, So ideally, you do that by isolating the new work within a bounded context and talking to the legacy through some kind of translator. Anyway, I could go on, but I think uh, it's not too surprising that some of them fail. (laughs) I agree. I mean, as you said, I guess
1: DDD only makes sense if you have a certain complexity, and with that comes risk, but also by well, the potential value of of the software. I guess what I found interesting about what you just said is that people get over ambitious at some points and re- try to reach for a perfect state. And to me, that is sort of natural for a lot of technical people. So I was wondering whether you have any secret sauce how to uh, focus the ambition on those parts of the system where it's really important and uh, to live with a not so great quality in the other parts and sort of stop your ambition there. Is there any tip that you have for that?
2: I think that, um, you know, you sum it up very well. That's what you need to do. And you need to have a boundary between the two. There's um, quite a bit in ddd about you know this is part of the strategic design part is how to decide which parts are which like there's a general category of generic subdomains where we say well there's nothing all that special we're not creating something here that we want to innovate this is something we want to do in a standard way in fact the ideal solution here would be let's not even write any software let's see if we can get it off the shelf and there is lots of stuff that just kind of keeps the lights on. But whether you have some brilliant insight or not isn't going to really change the outcome very much. And then there are those leverage points. And th- this is the general thing. But it's very hard, I admit, because first of all, it's hard to know. You know, you you often get it wrong and you'll often, you know, choose a topic which may turn out not to have been the very core of the strategic value, but still, I think there's a lot of value in trying. Another thing is the perfectionism, you know, because even if you got zeroed in on a certain part that was strategically valuable, perfectionism can still kill you. You know, you have to deliver, and you have to deliver fairly quickly. In fact, DDD depends on iteration. We assume that you will get it, you know, that you don't understand the problem very well at the beginning. That you'll get it wrong the first time, and so it's essential to get the first one done quick, and then get on to the second iteration and get that done quick too, because you probably get that wrong too, and then get on to the third one, which where you're probably going to have some clue by then, and that third one might be fairly good, and if you can get it done fairly quick, then you'll have time to do the fourth one, which is going to be really elegant. <laughs> and And I'm serious, I think that the, it's a weird paradox, but perfectionism prevents people from creating really elegant designs because it slows them down in the early iterations so they don't get to do enough iterations. Iteration, multiple iterations, and I mean iteration as in doing the same thing over, not iteration as... When people really are talking about increments, you know, where you, yeah, let's do a little bit of our requirements at a time. I mean, doing the same feature set, then redoing the same feature set again, but with a nicer design with a new insight into what it means. That's the key
1: move quick. That sounds pretty interesting to focus on the number of iterations instead of reaching for a perfect solution uh, at the very beginning. One thing I'm really wondering is, so if you ever plan to update the book, is there anything you would like to change in the book?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to update the book. I might write something new at some point. But anyway, I think I I probably won't change the book. But if I did, or, or rather, you know, If I were going to try to explain DDD better, I would certainly one thing that I've realized for a long time is that uh, the concept of the bounded context is much too late in the book. All the strategic design stuff is way back at the back. I treat it as an advanced topic and there's some logic to that, but the trouble is that it's so far back that most people never get to it really. And so I would at least weave that in to the first couple of chapters and and have the ubiquitous language is in chapter 2 so that's all right. but I would have bounded context there in chapter 2 or 3. And another thing I would do is try to change the presentation of the the building blocks. The building blocks are things like the entities and value objects and later domain events and stuff like that and they're important things but there, there's a big chunk of that stuff right in the early middle part, and uh, most people don't get past it, and, and they come away thinking that that's really the core of DDD, whereas in fact um, it's really not. It's an important part just because it helps people bridge... From the conceptual modeling of DDD to the necessity of having a program, a really, you know, having code that really reflects that model. And bridging that gap is difficult, and that's why there was so much emphasis on that. But I really think that the way I arranged the book gives people the wrong emphasis. So that's the biggest part of what I do is rearrange those things. Makes a lot of
1: sense, I guess. I I agree that strategic design is really, really important and really one of those things that a lot of people don't think about when they hear the term DDD. Recently, we have seen a trend towards microservices architectures, and we've already have had uh, quite a few discussions about microservices on the show. So how does microservices fit into the DDD world? Is there a relation?
2: I'm quite enthusiastic about microservices. I think that it helps people who want to do DDD quite a bit. And uh, I also think that certain aspects of DDD can help people do microservices better. So when I say it helps people do DDD, I've already talked about bounded contexts and how important that is. If you think about what the people do when they do microservices in a serious way, the interior implementation of microservices is very isolated. Everything's supposed to go through that interface. Any kind of data that they contain is exclusively held by them. There's really a tight boundary. And that is what you need. The bounded context is a concept which... In more traditional architectures, there weren't very good ways to implement that concept, you know, to really establish the boundary. So it seems to me that microservices has delivered us a practical and popular uh, way of defining and in, and sticking to those boundaries. And that's a big deal. And the emphasis on, you know, the, the micro, but someone once asked me, what's the difference between microservices and the old SOA services, and I said, well, I think part of it is the micro. These services are smaller. That's just a convention, of course, but it's an important convention. The idea that a very small piece of software would be very isolated and, uh, you know, do a narrow thing. If you think about my example of the order taking versus shipping, of course, those are too big to be a single microservice. It would probably be a little cluster of them each. But this notion that you would take them separately would come very natural in a microservices architecture. So that's one way in which, the big way in which I see that it helps DDD.
1: So when you say that shipping and order would be a cluster of microservices, does that mean that you would think that the bounded context would be a class of microservices? Is is that what you're saying?
2: That is exactly what I'm saying. And, And this, by the way, kind of points into where I think DDD can be helpful to microservices, because they have the same problem that SOA had in the sense that there is a vagueness about who can understand the interface of a service. So, within a bounded context, let's say the interior of a microservice, there are things that are crystal clear, or at least they could be. So let's say that we've declared one of these microservices to be a context and every concept in there is very consistent throughout. So we've said that uh, you know an order line item means this and it has certain properties and certain rules about how you combine it with other line items and whatever. All of these things are very clear in terms of their language and their rules. Now we go to the interface of this service and so there we would have certain language. You know, unless you view a service as just some strings and numbers going in and out But that's not the way people view services and not uh, not the way they do well-designed services. Well-designed services have a kind of language about what they do. They um, have a contract. So if we say, all right, well, then when you send an order to this microservice, this is what it means. And I don't just mean the fields that are in it. I mean, this is the concept of what it is. Now, if you zoom out a little bit, you see that typically what people do is that they have little clusters of services that essentially speak the same language so if my team is working on an ordering system we may have a model and we might let's say we have five microservices and they speak the same language and we've worked hard to make that language clear and then over here we're saying well we really are dealing with a different set of problems these microservices speak a different language if you send an order over here it might mean a little bit different thing and even if we tried to disambiguate with longer names we won't always get that right so it's better to just say over here is a different language and that means that if a message goes from a microservice within the cluster to another one that's going to be really easy But if a message goes from one of these clusters to another, we might need to put it through a component that can kind of translate it. So this is one way in which I think that once we look at multiple microservices, we need to think, do these all belong, or rather do clusters of them belong in different bounded contexts? And uh, there's also the issue of the inside and the outside. The outside of, a, of these microservices is what I'm really talking about now. The outside of a microservice might speak a different language than the inside. You know, you might say, pass an order to this microservice or pass a stream of orders to this microservice. Inside, it's going to crunch away with a model that's, that views orders in a statistical fashion, let's say. Right. And comes up with some recommendations or something. Well, The interior, then, is using a quite different model. The interior of that microservice is a a different bounded context. But as I said, that whole cluster is speaking the same language to each other. So we have this interchange context where we define what messages mean as they move between contexts. And then we have the interior context of each service.
1: Okay. It makes a lot of sense. So what I'm wondering is... If a bounded context is usually a cluster of microservices, is there any way that you can think of to tell whether a certain functionality should be implemented in a microservice on its own or just be part of another microservice? Because obviously if there is a cluster that is a bounded context, it's not one bounded context is one microservice. It's a set of microservices. So I'm wondering whether there's a rule that would give us an idea whether we should break this functionality apart into an additional microservice. And the context doesn't seem to cut it.
2: So first of all, yeah, if a cluster of microservices is a context or rather the, the exterior, right? The message passing between them would be uh, a microservice. And then inside of each is another Uh, sorry, is a bounded context. And then inside of each is another bounded context. But now you're saying, well, suppose that we have a new functionality we need to put somewhere. Should I put it as another microservice in this cluster? Well, I think that this is basically though um, the same kind of question we always have to answer when we're designing things. Does this piece of functionality fit within some existing structure or is it going to start distorting that structure out of a good shape? And if so, then where else should I put it? I think that factors that go into that, there's nothing, I'm not being too original here, is, you know, uh, how coupled is it to the other functions within the cluster? Like, if there's a necessarily a chatty relationship with three different components of that cluster, then it seems very likely we're going to want to keep it in that cluster. Okay. Another factor, though, would be the expressiveness of that cluster's, the expressiveness of that particular bounded context's language. Does it express this concept well? Can I extend that language to express this concept well? And if so, then it it might be a good fit. If not, then how much price am I going to pay in proliferation of different bounded contexts? You know, there's a trade-off, of course. So there's no real answer there. It's like... Here's where we have to do good work as designers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's probably the hard part about it.
2: A little trial and error helps, too. That's another reason to, you know, not be too perfectionist. You won't get it right anyway and save time for iteration. Right. Go back and do it again.
1: Yeah, and do it better the next time. Okay, so you already mentioned the term CQRS. So can you explain what that
2: is? I remember trying to understand that for a couple of years. Okay. So I will say that event sourcing and CQRS came along at almost the same time and the community of people that were working on them was very interwoven and the two things were not so clearly delineated, certainly not at the time. But I do think there are two distinct architectural concepts there. They often work well together but it's useful to think of them separately. The one that immediately made sense to me that just spoke to me instantly was event sourcing. Uh, and uh, then CQRS was a little bit less obvious to me, but I do think it's a good technique. So in essence, CQRS says that you break your system into components that either... Are read-only things or they are things that process updates so let's take the order taking you know that ordering example when a new order comes in we would put that in cqrs we put that in the form of a command a command meaning the c in cqrs and the uh, command would be you know enter this order or something like that now it goes to some microservice let's imagine whose job is to take this kind of command and see if it can be done. Like it might say, oh, I'm not going to take this order because we no longer carry that item. So commands as they're defined in CQRS can be, you know, you can say no. So that would be the response to that. Or let's say, okay, we do go ahead and we process the order and we reduce the inventory and we initiate a you know, a shipment, and we send a message about that. Some events come out. Some events that say things like, the inventory has been reduced, and another event that says there's a new order that has to be shipped. Uh, This is the responsibility of the, um, you know, that command processing part. Now, the query, that's the queue, sometimes you'd say, well, a user might want to look at the catalog, decide what he wants to order. The user might want to see the status of his order. Has my order been shipped yet? Things like that. So th- this is the, um, the queue part. I want to see the status of my order. And the idea is that this part of the system would be kept very simple. It's not going to, there would be a part of the system where you'd have to figure out how to ship in order. But once it had been shipped, you'd update the status in a, in a query part that would say this order has been shipped. So queries that way can scale differently than the command processing. And in a system where you have to do a lot, you know, if this were an e-commerce system where we were handling thousands of orders a minute, but maybe we're handling even more queries... But we can scale them independently. We can recognize that queries take less processing power, perhaps that there's that since there's no change happening, we don't have to worry about consistency rules. You know so the query part is very simple and fast and scales that way. The command part is where we have to deal with all the issues of, well, what if you know a command came in to cancel the order and uh, we've already shipped it. Uh, You know, what are the rules around that? Does the command still get processed? Uh, I mean, it'll get processed, but does it still get canceled? And, uh, you know, on and on. All the rule stuff goes into that figuring out how to respond to command.
1: So we should probably explain that CQRS is command query responsibility segregation, if I remember correctly? Yes. Okay. You already said that there is a relation to event sourcing. It seemed to me that the C part, the commands, are the events in event sourcing. Is that what the relationship is
2: like? Well, I think you could have an event source system that was not CQRS. So, for example, you could just have a module that that responds to queries and also can process commands. And if you had that, you wouldn't really be practicing CQRS because you wouldn't be separating them. But another thing is that in event sourcing, we're saying the state let's say that we have an order object. The old traditional OO way of doing this is that that order object might have a, um, it says it's been shipped. And in event sourcing, we say, well, we don't we don't have a field or anything like that. What we have is a series of events. And when it shipped, there is created an event, uh, has shipped. So when we want to know the status of that order, we just um, go and find the events relevant to it, and then roll them up. The classic example might be, well, I'll use the example I first heard Greg Young use to explain the point. So, let's say that you were doing some kind of stock trading application. Someone says, sell 10,000 shares of IBM at a certain, you know, above a certain price. So, so this order goes out. It's 10,000. And now, question comes well how many shares are still to be sold so each time we execute this order let's say we sell a thousand and then in a separate transaction we sell two thousand more so here we have two events well really three events one was sell ten thousand and then there were two events that said we sold a thousand and then another event that said we sold two thousand now the question is how much remains to be sold how much IBM should we sell at that price and we can at the time of the query we can find what events are visible to us and we can calculate it so in the old days we'd have had that object and it would have had a 10000 and then the first sale comes in and we'd subtract 1000 and so now it would say sell 9000 and then another 2000 come in and we'd say sell 7000 and event sourcing says don't even have that field. Just, uh, or if you do, it's an immutable field that expresses the original order to sell 10,000. And then you've got a completely separate object, an event object, called, that says we sold 1,000 and another one that says we sold 2,000. And if you want to know, you can figure it out. You look at all those events and you say, well, 10,000 minus 1,000 minus 2,000. And that is the the concept of event sourcing, basically. So,
1: what I'm wondering is, what is the relationship to DDD then uh, of CQRS and event sourcing?
2: Well, event sourcing, I think it's easier to illustrate because it's a modeling technique. It's it's talking about how you would represent the domain. If you look at before that and the emphasis on entities and values, this is placing the emphasis in a little bit different place. It's saying certain things happen in the domain. In the domain uh, that we have got an order execution and that should be explicitly modeled. So it's really making the model more explicit about the changes. If you take the old style uh, OO system where things change and and the objects represent the way things are in our most current view, and this also is the typical relational database approach too but they don't show you what happened. They just show you how things are now. Whereas event sourcing shifts and says, let's model the state change rather than the state. And we can derive the state from the state change. So now we say, we executed an order. That's the thing we store. We executed an order again. That's the thing we store. If you want to have that other view, it's just a roll-up of this. So it's really a a modeling technique and it emerged from trying to apply ddd to certain kinds of problems that were very event centric and also where they had to get very high volume with this you can scale up the updates because if your updates are very frequent and your reads are less frequent for example you can be inserting events into the system without having to update an object in place every time the objects all become immutable which has certain technical benefits especially if you're trying to scale things parallelize things and so I think it fit into DDD so naturally because it's really a revamping of the building blocks is one way to look at it but it's a little more radical than that.
1: One thing That I'm really wondering about is if I look at DDD and in particular, well, on the model part, it really seems to be an object oriented approach, I guess, because there are those value objects, entities, and all these kinds of things. And it's rather easy to think about how that would be implemented using object oriented techniques. In the last few years, there has been a shift to function programming. So, do you think that? DDD can be applied to functional programming too, even though it was originally expressed in rather object-oriented terms?
2: Yes, that is one of the big things that's happened over these 11 years. The reason that everything's expressed in terms of objects is because objects were king in 2003, 2004. And what else would I have described it as? People who wanted to address complex domains, wanted to try to develop a model of that domain to help them deal with the complexity. they used objects. And the building blocks were an attempt to describe certain things that helped those kind of models actually succeed. Now, if you are going at it from a functional point of view, then your model's going to look quite different, or rather, your implementation is going to look quite different. I think that the event sourcing actually points a good way because, you know, I, m- I mentioned that if, if you f- apply full-on event sourcing, the objects are immutable, which is a start toward the functional perspective because instead of having objects we change in place, we have some kind of data structure that we use a function to derive another data structure from. So. If you imagine then an event source system where, and let me just throw microservices in. You have a microservice pass some events to it, and it computes the result and passes out another stream of events that say, well, as a consequence of this, this is what happens. So I pass in, oh, we executed a uh, trade for two thousand, and we executed another trade for a thousand, and it passes out a um, an event that says the order has been reduced to 7,000, whatever. So it's pretty easy to imagine implementing that as a function, actually. Perhaps more natural than OO, in fact. You know, you've got a stream of events and you want to use it to compute another stream of events. That really cries out for a function, to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds somewhat like an actor model, even.
2: Yes, uh, well, you know... um, some people in the ddd community have really been into the actor model von vernon for example talked a lot about using actor model and uh indeed it does seem to be a good fit it seems like that it corresponds closely to another one of the building blocks which we haven't talked about yet in the original book it talked about a building block called uh, aggregate which was sort of trying to describe a set of objects which would have rules about their internal data consistency and somehow would be allowed to enforce those rules. So people have said, well, if you take that unit, that unit of whatever I'm trying to make consistent at any given change, and you give that responsibility to a single actor, now you imagine an actor is receiving events or commands and it has to figure out whether it can maintain that state in a in a consistent so move from one state to another in a way that respects the invariance of that particular aggregate. And so that's an application of actor model to uh, you know pulling in a little bit of the old uh, aggregates plus events and commands. A lot's been going on when we start talking about it. The way people really build these things is so different. We should
1: probably say a few words about actors. So while an actor is something that gets events from the outside and executes them sequentially, it is a model for parallel computation where you have multiple actors exchanging events and each of them works in sequentially but the system as a whole is parallel because all these actors work parallel on their own event streams that's basically the idea that seems to be a good fit to the aggregates as you just said the ddd aggregates
2: right and your description is a very nice summary of their technical properties of these things and if i try to describe why this is so useful when we try to you know we have these conceptual models of the domain and we're trying to make a software system that respects these concepts and expresses them so there's a lot of different state within a big system and uh... aggregate says well you know one of the things that will keep you from going parallel like you do in act is that you have no boundary where you can say that the result of this computation does not immediately affect anything else, that we can handle that asynchronously. And that's exactly what aggregates do. They define a subset of the state which has rules about how you can change that state. And you say any kind of resulting changes elsewhere will be handled asynchronously. That's what an aggregate does. And it's related to the domain because you have to look at the business to know what really can be changed independently. where will there be consequences to getting things out of sync yeah seems like
1: a good uh, fit of a certain technology or technical approach to a certain domain approach
2: yeah because when we first were doing the aggregate thing uh well before i wrote my book back the late 90s at least and uh it was difficult to implement the aggregates there wasn't really a technical artifact to hang your hat on. So, the nice thing about actor is that it gives you something to say, we have decided that we're going to make each aggregate the responsibility of one actor. You know, now I, I can really tell another programmer, okay, you know, this is my aggregate because I made an actor for it. It's really helps if you can have an explicit thing in your... This is why, by the way, I think objects are still a valuable concept. It says that here's a software artifact that makes explicit something in our conceptual model, that there's this thing, an important thing in the model, or rather in the domain, that we have defined. And there's a certain state around it. There's some rules and behaviors around it. Now, personally, I've, I've taken a holiday from Oh, well, for a few years to freshen up my thinking but we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater there's I think uh, the making things explicit is good. Another technology that has been on the rise in
1: the last few years is NoSQL. Is there any relation between NoSQL and DDD too or are they not related?
2: Uh, no sequel uh, of course is not. Unlike uh, event sourcing and CQRS, people who came up with those concepts really were DDDers, who were trying to come up with a better way to do DDD. That's not true at all with NoSQL. Came from a totally different world. They were very interested in technical properties of what they were doing and so on. And above all, I think the motivator of a lot of these things was speed. However, I actually think that It's a great boon for DDD. One of the biggest handicaps that we've had for a long time is this obsession with everything being stored in relational database. Data in a relational database has to be structured a certain way. In the days when objects were dominant, the relational database was also still the dominant database. And so we used OR mappers, object relational mappers. Of course, people still use these. I say it as if it's in the past. And then people would talk about the impedance mismatch. Well, what's the impedance mismatch? It just says that the fundamental conceptual structure of an object is different from a relational table or a set of tables. The way they relate to each other is different. The trouble here. I think it was Eric Meyer I heard make this point. He said, when we say NoSQL, we should make No be an acronym for not only. So we should say not only SQL. And his point was that the problem isn't the relational database, which is a brilliant thing. You know, they're a wonderful, powerful tool. But when you use them for everything, then you encounter data that doesn't fit into them, that isn't the right shape and you have to twist them into that shape. But when you're dealing with a problem that fits them, there's just nothing else. You know, they're a fantastic tool, but we've used them for everything. You know, it's hard to find a tool that works well for everything, certainly objects. I think that's another problem with objects, is they were used for everything. And of course, they're not good at everything. This relates to DDD because we're trying to take all these different concepts from the domain and we are trying to create concepts that have a tangible form in the software. And that shape, sometimes there's a natural shape to it that, you know, often, more often is object-like than is relational. If it's object-like, maybe you do want to represent it as objects, but then you have to cram it into relational table with relations. So instead of that, maybe you use, uh, you know, a key value store, which is very mon- a very natural fit. To objects, actually. Object structures really are just references to references of references. You know, it's got that same kind of tree structure that a uh, graph structure, anyway. Though good ones have more of a tree structure. And uh, so it's a better fit uh, to some kinds of problems. And then the nice thing about NoSQL is that it's a relatively diverse world. There's the graph databases, since I did mention graphs, but there are things that are really nicely modeled as graphs. And if you say, how am I going to model this thing? You know, sometimes people think modeling means OO modeling. You know, oh, I have to draw a UML diagram of it and then implement it in C Sharp or Java. That's not what modeling means. Modeling means to create abstractions that represent important aspects of your problem and and put those to work. So sometimes the natural abstraction is a graph. You want to say, well, how do these people relate to each other? You know, the graph databases, Neo4j and things like that allow us to choose a tool that actually fits the kind of problem we're trying to solve. I don't now have to twist it into objects and then figure out how to do graph logic over objects. You know, which while, by the way, I'm also stuffing the object data into a relational database, <laughs> uh, instead, you know, I use a graph database and ask graph questions using a graph query language. It's, uh, you know, this is the world no SQL to me, that we can choose a tool that fits well with the problem we're trying to solve. I think the the point that you're
1: making is quite important. Uh, obviously, what you're talking about is uh, how those NoSQL databases give you an advantage concerning modeling data, while a lot of people still think that uh, NoSQL is all about scaling and big data issues. And um, it is one of the benefits, but it's probably not even the most important one. It's more about this flexibility, as you said, and the more natural modeling and different alternatives to relational databases. So I think that's that's a very good point.
2: Yeah, and you know, uh, I agree with you. And I think the re- main reason that people think of it as primarily a scaling uh, technique is because that's where it came from. That was the real driver behind it. And probably took the absolute necessity of those big data people having to, you know, the, the equilibrium where we were so deeply rooted to that relational database, it would take something like that to get us loose. <laughs> but I do think that the great opportunities for NoSQL are in the world of complex problems where the things we want to do just don't really fit the relational model. Sometimes they don't fit the OO model. We can choose the thing that fits.
1: That's actually a very good way to, to sum it up. So thanks a lot for taking the time. Thanks a lot for all the interesting answers and the interesting insights I enjoyed it a lot. thank
2: you
0: Thanks for listening to SE Radio an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net To provide feedback, you can write comments on each episode on the website or write a review on iTunes Mention or message us on Twitter, at SE Radio or search for the Software Engineering Radio Group on LinkedIn, Google+, or Facebook. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Thanks again for your support.